This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Welcome to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Avery, we are back again. We missed you for the interview portion last week, but had a great conversation with Seth Goldstein. This week, you have lined up a banger of a guest in Rachel Weiss. She's been at L'Oreal for 16 years, but heads up Bold, which is their VC venture arm, but has played roles in strategy and in innovation and really all aspects of the business. So it's really excited about that. Give us a little bit of a preview of why you thought Rachel would be a great guest for us. Rachel is a Vayner partner and a Vayner friendly. We've worked on her with different things over the years. And I thought she'd be a perfect guest to share a little bit of her experience over the decades, really representing innovation at a massive company like L'Oreal. I'm excited to hear her share, you know, where she's been, what she's seeing, what are the trends that are driving a beauty giant to think about emerging channels, what they're seeing that's working. And I also want to get her take on threads because I know she's going to have one. Well, speaking of threads, last week was when it launched. It was the quickest app to 100 million users. We've seen a tremendous amount of attention being paid to it. What are your like first week takeaways from being on it? I've seen you there. You've been sort of been pretty active. I've actually seen a lot of Gen C love happen on threads. Uh, a lot of folks have been mentioning us and chatting at the podcast, which has been great. Love that for us. I would love to kind of get your first opinions of it. And do we need a new social app? Apparently we do because over 100 million people in five days wanted a new social app and Threads is living rent-free and my homepage and I keep it up because I'm trying to just understand it better. I think the way that I learn is always by doing and by like listening and learning, kind of playing around. The one thing I will say though is a colleague of mine, John Morgenstern, tempered everyone's excitement when we were like, yeah, this is taking off. And he was like, you know who Threads just dethroned as the fastest after 50 million users? And we're like, who? And it was Google+. And I actually worked at Google+, during that time. And I think I was a power user on Google+, as well. So my takeaway here is it's amazing to be excited and to embrace the new new. But you know, we also need to see if this is a sustained burst of excitement or exactly how Zuck is going to play threads. Sam, I know you've got a lot of love for threads because you see these kind of threads of decentralization throughout the communication that they have shared. I'd love to hear your take on that because I know you are unusually bullish on threads. I don't know if I'm unusually bullish on threads. I think that I am unusually bullish on what I've now seen as a lot of signals about the future of social being decentralized. And I think that we should all be really excited about that hypothetical. So I went pretty deep with reading and listening to interviews with Adam Rosseri, who runs Instagram and also brought threads out. So right now, I will say threads is not decentralized. They couldn't get it done in time to build fully on what's called ActivityPub, which is a protocol. The thing that about ActivityPub, which I really sort of like, is the group that brought it out is the World Wide Web Consortium. These are the people who also set like HTML standards back in the day. So it's a group that's been in sort of the programmatic layers of the internet for decades. So 
Activity Pub is a protocol. We have an explainer on Coindesk for anyone who wants to go look. We'll put it in the show notes. But the fact that they are very quickly migrating to Activity Pub basically means that your followership and the people you follow, when you jump to a different app, you can have those come with you, right? So they say, Sam. So they say. (laughs) Well, I mean, Mastodon is doing it. And this is built on the same thing Mastodon is on. So again, yes, I mean, I want them to flip the switch for sure. But the thing that is actually really exciting about this for me is I still think we're going to be an app world or inside an app world or an ecosystem where those who write the best features, because features don't port with your follower count, right? So it's still going to be based on who's writing the best apps. But the idea that you could plug into another app that will bring the threads content into itself and allow people to sort of still follow the same people and have similar conversations and those conversations transcend platform, I think is just a really interesting thing. And the fact that Mosseri says this and Jack Dorsey says this, and in some respects, even some of the stuff that Elon said about this, that we are at least, I think, incrementally moving forward towards the idea of social networks and your relationships should be decentralized because we've all had the issues of, oh, I lost the password to account or I got deplatformed or something happened. And now I have to rebuild my follower account from scratch, which is almost impossible in this day and age. Where this might be going, I just don't know if I fully believe Zuck would be incentivized to enable decentralization in this way. We just haven't seen that kind of behavior from him before. But let's see, time will tell. I think the sort of tech billionaire class actually is our big proponents of decentralization in that respect. We should make no mistake, even if this is built on ActivityPub, they are going to hoover up all of our data. That's going to happen regardless because that's how they make their money and that's their business. The difference being that if you're like, you know what, I would love to like have a Threads-like experience on app Y that is not Threads, but maybe I can log in utilizing my Threads account and all my friends and all of my texts now pops up. So that's where I do think that like it does give an opening. I believe they will do it. And I think they'll actually do it pretty soon because they've been promising and talking about it a lot. And again, ActivityPub is built by the folks who are behind what is HTML5 or whatever number we're at these days, I think also is a trusted party, unlike it being built by some sort of nascent group that no one knows about. I agree with that. All right. Big story number two, post-threads, is we are recording this on July 12th. Yesterday was July 11th. What makes July 11th so exciting? 7-11. Tell us more, Avery. July 11th, second only to Christmas. I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) 7-Eleven is a international holiday, a national treasure. The humble Slurpee is available for free in a size small across 7-Eleven locations. And 7-Eleven is an incredible convenience store that makes many, many, many people's lives better on a daily basis. They have great coffee. There are so many things I love about 7-Eleven. And they're also a dear client of Vayner 3s. So we love them. And we've been working with them over the last year plus on starting to think about ways they can integrate emerging channels into some of their marketing campaigns and mix. And this year, we did a fun little digital collectible for Slurpee Day. It's actually going to be available for another couple of days as well. It was a little fun game that is on their website. It was on the cups and shared out across socials a little bit. This was a thing where you could find your Slurpee vibe. 
You can mint your own digital collectible. And of course, you sort of log in and share your info. And then you can get, you know, chances to win this super amazing iced out collection that they did with a jewelry designer that's all blinged out Slurpees. So it was a nice integrated campaign that I think was super fun and not targeted at sort of a Web3 native audience, but more at a broad audience who loves Slurpees. And let's be honest, who doesn't love Slurpees? I did mint one. Mine was very, uh, I think I used all the flavors. What was your vibe? I don't remember what my vibe was, but it was very vibey. Um, there was like a Calypso citrus thing, right? Pina colada, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going there. Since 2002, 7-Eleven has been giving out these free Slurpees. Do you have any concept? like what the number is of free celebrities that have been given out in the last 21 years? Definitely millions. It's a huge phenomenon. There's a whole culture around 7-Eleven from the cars at 7-Eleven to Slurpee mixes. They also have a bring your own cup day. So maybe we can talk about that soon where people bring in like, I'm talking like gallon buckets, like someone brought a kayak once. A kayak full of Slurpees. Yeah. You know, you brought bowls, mixing bowls, like the largest containers you've ever seen in your life. Um, people bring it in. So 7-Eleven is just like fun and irreverent and cool and a really awesome brand. I love to see them participating in this sort of Web3 space in a way that's interesting and fun for their consumers. And their CMO, Marissa, had an awesome quote where she shared in the press release that, you know, as a result of this sort of find your vibe, she says, maybe you'll even give us some inspiration for future flavors. So who knows, Sam, if we see a very popular one, maybe we can influence them to consider it. I mean, soy sauce as a Slurpee. (laughs) Would work well for me. (laughs) All right. Final sort of story. We've been seeing a lot of stuff happening in the space of tokenization of real world assets. And I just wanted to see if this was on your radar. So the two things that I thought were interesting, which are very different. One was someone who put up the fact that they were able to take a loan on a Patek watch, Philippe Patek, where you basically send it to someone that's kept in escrow. You have a loan amount, someone else buys the NFT and in essence gives you the loan. And if you don't pay it back, they get your watch, which is kind of just like an interesting model of basically the idea that every asset in the world could be tradable as long as someone's willing to pay for it. In the same way, everything could be lendable, which also I think is a really interesting piece. Complementary to that, we actually wrote a story yesterday about the fact that there is $600 million already of tokenized treasury bonds, right? People are trying to lock in the treasury rates, which are like over 4% right now. And investors are actually flocking to this because it kind of allows them to buy, in essence, a tokenized contract that says, I'm going to lend the government money. So whether it's, you know, just core investing and financial systems, or it's the idea that a car, a home deed, my watch, whatever it can be, can have a sort of tokenized application of a real world asset. I wanted to get your thoughts. Do you think there's something there, there? And do you think this is an area that like brands should be taking notice of? Yes, there's a there, there. Should brands be taking notice of this? Honestly, I think the financialized part, you know how I feel about this, is tricky with brands. I think that lending is also tricky, just of, of a place for them to play. But I think consumers should be taking notice of this and considering it. I know I saw that that Patek example come up a couple of times in news and articles and group chats, because I think it's a very like practical use case that makes a ton of sense. So I'm interested in that. And I think the returns are also like quite good, but I see this for more of a risk on investor than necessarily Fortune 500 brand. Because also this is like a new and like not necessarily proven thing. Like what about if that company goes out of business? Like what are the repercussions? You know, it's a little bit different than leaving in a safe deposit box. 
Correct. Yes. I mean, there's some trust in the platform. And I think that's always the risk in any of the sort of Web3 world is there's a lot of great promise in the ideation, but the practice of it often is hard. I guess the thing that makes me wonder is the idea of, you know, we've all seen Company X has a contest, gives away a motorcycle. Maybe that motorcycle is an NFT until you actually can claim it. Like there's a way that I think that you could simplify certain things around things like prizing, like the ability to sort of sell something that was given to you, or even a brand allowing people to tokenize, you know, things that are coming in the future, or maybe the redemption is the opportunity there. It is. There's certainly an opportunity. Yes. So with that, Avery, we're going to go in the break. When we get back, Rachel Weiss from L'Oreal here. Tell us everything there is to know about beauty, about investing in the beauty world as a VC, and about emerging technologies and the areas of interest that she's paying attention to. So we'll see you after the break. Web3 offers budding opportunities for brands to create more value for their customers, engage fans, and build immersive community. But that doesn't come without its risks. Chainalysis helps Fortune 500 brands better understand and manage the risks in Web3 through proactive assessments, on-chain monitoring, investigations, training, and more, so that they can focus on building a roadmap for long-term growth. Learn more about how Chainalysis can help your company grow in Web3 at chainalysis.com slash Gen C. Rachel Weiss, thank you so much for joining us today on Gen C. I am so excited that we got on your busy schedule and we get to have one of the best minds in the digital innovation space with us here today. Um, How's it going? I'm good. Thank you for having me. That's quite a compliment. Thank you. (laughs) For one, I can't believe you and Sam haven't met before because I feel like you should have met before. And second, you've been on our list of people to have on this podcast for a while. So I'm glad it's finally happening. Can you tell Jen C a little bit about you, a little bit about Rachel, where you've been in your career and what you're up to now? Whoa. I mean, my career has been pretty long. I am currently um, the um, lead in our US market for Bold, which is L'Oreal's strategic venture capital fund. This will be celebrating my 16 years at L'Oreal, which went so fast. But my career has really not been planned. The last 16 years have been planned, but coming to work at the world's largest beauty company, leading venture capital in the very exciting market was not something that was ever something I ever knew could be a job when I started, when the internet was new and fresh in the early 90s. Rachel, when I was doing research, I found a line in a profile of you that said, Rachel began blogging to promote a stand-up career in the mid-90s. So one, was blogging the way that you got into like your passion for tech? And two, do you remember your best joke? So I'll tell you, like in the mid-90s, Like I always had a knack for, quote, how to use the computer. I put myself through film school. I made a living doing jobs because I knew how basic coding of how to use, quote, the computer, right? And at the same time, I was an artist and I was going to film school and I was like so poor. And I remember the first day being in Tisch School of the Arts in graduate school and sitting in the computer center and they invented the internet, and I was like, this is amazing. Like as an artist, now I got like full distribution. I had had a zine where I was like photocopying. I was like, this is going to open up like communication for women, for people of color, for poor people, for people who like don't have access to technology in a way that never existed. So I was super excited about this. And I was like, I'm going to make a career in this. And I talked to a recruiter. He's like, this is going to be a great career for people. And I was like, okay, I don't have any idea what I'm doing. 
at the same time, I was young and I graduated from school and I was an executive assistant and I started doing stand up. And I started with, it wasn't even called blogging at the time, right? I was doing stand up and part of being an upstart in stand up comedy is you have to get people to come to your show. And that's hard, right? But I decided because I was working in Hollywood, I had a little bit of gossip that I had as an executive admin. No one knew about, you thought five people came to your website, right? I started GeoCity sites called Weiss World. And at Weiss World, I would promote my shows. It was like early Twitter. I had a page on there that I was ZocDoc. I just gave doctor recommendations. There was um, a stalker thing of this guy in my neighborhood who was an artist. And I just talked about everywhere I ran into him. I had recipes and I had a fake character named Prefontaine, my imaginary dog. And he did advice. And people started to like come. My friends and family started to come to Weiss World. But it was started out as a way to promote my comedy shows. And it was a very early gossip blog before we even knew what a blog was on GeoCities. That's amazing. We need to make Weiss World happen. I would go to Weiss World. We need to get Weiss World on threads ASAP. If you look at Weiss World, it is pretty revolutionary. Like you'll see bits of what's, what's scaled today. Also shout out GeoCities. Like GeoCities and the Globe, I remember back in the 90s, were like the places for microblogging and building your own sites. And Yahoo bought it for like three and a half billion dollars in the late 90s. And no one's ever heard from it since. Yeah, we didn't even know what Yahoo even was really at that time. But um, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have any access. Computers were expensive. You know, I built my site with elementary coding skills out of this computer center on the corner of Bleecker and Leroy Street. And um, that was where I worked on White World in a, in a computer center with a computer like cafe for so much an hour with um, the coffee. And that's where it all started. That's where White World started. <laughs> And people like, how'd you get into this? It was Weiss World. I love it. That's a good answer. Um, and Rachel, I feel like Weiss World is, you know, we're joking, but it was really a segue into your career in innovation prior to what you're doing now at Bold. You were leading digital innovation across L'Oreal. You've had a million amazing, you know, parts and pieces of that journey. It seems like innovation and strategy have, you know, kind of become more important than ever as brands try to position themselves and try to understand emerging technologies. How did your career at L'Oreal unfold? And was innovation always a little bit of what you were doing? Well, I mean, I think when I started at L'Oreal or any job I had, I mean, prior to L'Oreal, I was at Citigroup working on um, what the internet could do for banking, right? I worked at a publishing company where we were talking about putting brands like Tromer's Travel Guide and Cliff Notes online. Innovation had, at that point, 16 years ago, was really a term that was defined around products and laboratories and ingredients and digital innovation, or even the word digital then wasn't even a job title. I think I was, you know, new media or internet or something like that. Like digital wasn't even in the lexicon of um, jobs, but it evolved because now digital encompasses and technology encompasses consumer marketing, right? Like we have e-commerce at scale, we have CRM at scale, companies like Google, like there was a point when it was really magical. Like I remember starting at L'Oreal and giving topics around search engine marketing, which was really standard in financial services. And it was very new to the organization. I mean, those are things that are table stakes now. So I've always tried to stay away from the word digital when I describe what I do and innovation, right? I talk about growth and I talk about consumer mindset and I talk about where do people want to spend time and how will technology facilitate them to want to discover and buy and love brands. And that's how I've always thought about it, even before digital was a title and a job. Looking at your career, which has been a long one with L'Oreal, you've really seen that business also through a moment when the idea of just the change over from 
brand leads everything to UGC, to social, then into sort of like the new kind of world of of where we're at now, which includes metaverse and all these other, you know, and AI and all of that stuff. But you started in digital practice, you know, you kind of let strategy look like for a couple of groups there. Now you're on the venture side. But can you talk about maybe just the evolution of beauty? Because like it felt like there was a while where L'Oreal and any other kind of beauty and makeup brand was just like, it's going to be at Sephora and you go buy it and you do your thing, right? Now it's like experiential. Now it's lifestyle. Like just talk a little bit about the evolution of beauty. Well, I always talk about there's one moment that I think really changed the beauty industry. And we talked about beauty. Exactly. It was about distribution and it was about luxury beauty or mass beauty or professional beauty. And it was about where the channel of distribution was focused when I started at L'Oreal within our company. But now you have humans at the core, right? And that all changed when the camera became central to the beauty experience. When I came to L'Oreal, my mandate was how do we take the wall off the wall? How do we take something and demystify beauty shopping? And the camera changed that, right? It changed the whole creator economy. You had this intersection of commerce, of creators, and new platforms like YouTube and you know, then Instagram came. It changed the beauty industry. And it was that trifecta that I found everything I dreamed would happen, happened just as a consumer, but so rapidly in beauty. It really made things that seemed were... The fact that no one would ever buy a lipstick online or Rachel, why would you want to go film someone making a beauty tutorial? You're crazy. But those things that happened very quickly. And it was with a camera and a smartphone changed the beauty industry. And it's crazy because that was like, you know, 15 years ago and that started to become really popular. And you have done so many different innovation related product things, marketing things. Can you share some of your favorite ones over your 16 years at L'Oreal that really stood out, you know, from influencer to Roblox? Like Rachel, you've led so much of that work. You're a dear friend and client of Vayner's. We've been a little bit of your journey, but you've just done so many cool things. Maybe there are one or two examples that were really breakthrough that come to mind. I mean, I'm always really proud when like we're first to market and we do something that the platform itself is like, thinks is skeptical, right? And then it just becomes normal way of working. But, you know, I'm really proud of the early work we did with YouTube and building creators. And we did a series called The Hair Files years and years ago before YouTube was even selling advertising with um, Such and Pack hosting. And it was um, our hairstylist and our ambassador doing hairstyles. And like, it seemed, it was really revolutionary. And now creators are at the heart of the beauty industry. I'm really proud of the work we did in early augmented reality with Tryon Beauty. I mean, I remember going into Snap in the early days and they didn't even know who I was and telling them that their filters would be the best beauty AR I've ever seen. I'm really proud that like that became something that, again, is transferred across platforms and become a way of discovering beauty. I'm proud of like the first e-commerce analysis I did for what would sell online and doing for professional products. And then now that's like seeing the growth of that from zero to, you know, a huge percentage of our business globally has been really exciting. So I'm less excited sometimes about campaigns, but starting something that's really hard that then I see just becomes this way of working and it's adopted. So, you know, that's what I've been really proud of over my career. It's also really interesting, just in the span of your career, like I remember very early AR beauty try on where it's like, it just puts a block over your lips, right? That kind of shows a color like, or like the Ray-Ban stuck on your face. Now you go on TikTok and it like can age you 20 years really accurately. The technology that understands spatial, what's happening in your room, what's happening on your face, what's happening in your body, and the ability to put and augment kind of very realistic experiences must've been extremely transformational for the beauty brands. 
Yeah, it was extremely transformational and it made beauty accessible. The other thing too that happened that was one of my favorite anecdotes about being in the beauty business. I remember when I started in the beauty business, I went to a summit that was hosted by a publisher and there was an editor there and she was talking about beauty tips and beauty codes. And she told the story. She's like, you should never leave the house wearing blue eyeshadow and red lipstick. She had this very like old fashioned way of what beauty meant and how to present yourself with cosmetics. And now look what's happening in beauty. I mean, there's diversity. There's like the codes of beauty have rapidly changed. And I think that's really, really very exciting because beauty has become more inclusive. The how you present yourself to the world has changed. That has been really exciting to watch. Let's talk a little bit more about how you present yourself to the world because we've had a lot of discussions together over the last you know, two or three years around digital first identity, digital first beauty. Rachel, as someone who deeply understands the beauty consumer, what are you seeing people think about when it comes to representing themselves digitally online? Is it, are you thinking a lot about avatars? Are you thinking a lot about multiple identities? Are you thinking about the P word, AK fidgetal? What's your take on how consumers are expressing themselves, you know, through beauty online? I mean, I think the way that I'm thinking about beauty now is less about the channel, but more about what's going on with the human. And I think there is a big conversation to be had around our next generation consumers and how they emotionally and mentally feel. That's one thing I'm thinking about, right? If you see a generation of consumers who are coming up, who are growing up on Roblox and Minecraft, studies are showing that they're like playing games and feeling satisfaction. When they get in the real world, they don't feel so good. And that is a part of beauty that I think that still needs to be discovered. The second area I'm thinking a lot about on the flip side is that we have such an aging population and all the makeup, all the skincare in the world can't make you feel beautiful and can't make you feel confident unless you have, you know, things to help you in your life and you have a longevity plan or you have a plan to to help you with aging. You know, these are bigger macro issues that I'm thinking about aside from digital or AI or data. These are human problems. And I think that technology, when I started, you know, in the early days was very much about fun and we were very raw. And then it became this channel of like, you know, IQ and big data and smartness. But I think that technology has moved from IQ to EQ and the winners of brands and companies, the EQ has to be at the heart of the human experience. It's also interesting because I I went down a really deep Mr. Beast rabbit hole this past weekend. And the thing that really struck me about him was how much he just wants to make, in his mind, really fun videos. And granted, he knows the analytics of what makes the algorithms work, but he's also like, it has to be really fun. And it reminded me of, and I'm forgetting his name, the primary game designer for Nintendo. When Nintendo was doing its games like Mario, they only said, is it going to be the most fun game? They weren't interested in whether it was a trendy game or was this or that. It was just like, if fun was the quotient that we're looking at to say, this is what equals success. I still think that what you're saying is so valid, right? That like, in the end, it's still the emotional connection and fun is a primary emotion every one of us has and every one of us wants more of. Yeah, I mean, everyone talks about the return on investment and I'm always like, what is the return of investment on happiness? And I think we sometimes live in a culture where the turn of investment is based on fear. But I'm a big fan of joy and happiness and technology. If it helps us become a happier and more sustainable and better society, you know, that's what for beauty personally means for me and why I've been at L'Oreal for so long. It's a much larger mission. Well, we are in Gen Z, so we're going to have to get your take on all things Web3, Rachel. Of course. You are sort of a personal early adopter, and I think it'd be interesting for you to share how you got into it. 
You are the proud owner of a crypto punk. Rachel is in it. Is it worth anything? Any- I haven't checked my wallet. So I don't know. Send it to me for safekeeping. It's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, tell us a little bit about like, so you're on this journey. It started with Wise World. It's in AR. It's YouTubers. It's digital first identity. Along comes Web3. What made you want to start looking in and understanding it more? Well, I think when I first got introduced to Web3, there was the conversation, two things happening, right? The first thing was about how do we, and coming, you know, my previous role in financial services and really learning about how the marriage of crypto and wallets could help the people who can't be banked be banked. And that for me was super exciting. I was like, this is like a big global problem. I'd like to learn more about this. And it was really through that lens that I came in. But then we started to have conversations around Web3 and ownership. And I think if you hear my story, I'm someone who has been someone who has been a creator, put out tons of content, started as a creator. And at the heart, I consider myself an artist. And the concept of being able to have a technology and an infrastructure that allowed humans to own part of the internet as an artist or as a consumer was always my dream. It was a dream that I had always had. And and that's the initial impetus for my obsession into Web3. I think, you know, Avery and I are really kind of taking expansive views on Web3. So I would love to hear a little bit, Rachel, about your thoughts on, because I think, yes, we all agree that ownership is key to the future of this kind of new internet. But what are the other complementary technologies that you're interested in? Is it AI? Is it gamification and immersive worlds? Like, what are the things that you think round out the pie of this future internet? I mean, I think what's happening around generative AI is super exciting. You know, I think there is two camps, uh, people who think it's going to destroy artists, and then there's people who are artists where it can augment you. I think that's exciting. I'm excited about the fact that AI is a tool that makes my life easier in many ways, right? Like, I'm waiting for AI applications to just make my daily tasks better. I hope, God, I never have to make a PowerPoint again one day, and that's easy to do. You know, that's why I'm excited about AI. But you know, AI is on the hype cycle right now. And people talk about AI, like we talked about 5G and last year we were in metaverse. Like the ship has sailed, right? Like this stuff is happening, you know, and we're early days, but we were early days in video. We were early days on search. We were early days on the internet. Like it's going to evolve. And I think when we talk about why things are in the hype cycle or is this hype cycle, like, it's the wrong question. It doesn't matter. Let's put your EC hat on. You're part of Bold, which is... L'Oreal's VC arm. You guys invested in everything from the metaverse and NFT platforms, but also biotech and AI systems. You know, is there a thesis around how you look at these emerging technologies and why you think that they can help the L'Oreal business as a whole? I'll give you an example. So we just did an investment in a company called Rembrandt. And Rembrandt was, we started talking to them. We met their founder who um, we knew from prior companies before the whole chat GPT conversation exploded. And he was solving a very simple problem. How do we create a marketplace to use technology to be able to render product placement within video without having to be written to a script, without having to contact the producer? It was the number one question I always got asked in my innovation role that I could never solve. And at the flip side, it's a marketplace where the creator gets part of that revenue. So that's a really great example of artificial intelligence built into a startup that we would invest in that solves a problem for L'Oreal that is building new ways of working, that's building a new marketing channel and building a new way that consumers want to be able to engage and our customers want to be able to engage if you consider our creators also partners in the world. So I think it's a very great example of how I'm thinking about technology for the future. 
And all of your product design, I assume, is already 3D rendered. No, no. You know, I think that that's one of the big things that, you know, it reminds me that when we have the 3D rendering conversation, it reminds me when we started to have to put videos into vertical and we're like, we'd have meetings like, all right, we have to start talking with our agencies and videos have to be made vertical. That's the 3D rendering conversation now. So so we don't talk about it. No, we talk about it. We need it. I think brands are struggling, not struggling, but it's another work stream that will need to happen. And it's something that we are talking about. 3D is one of those things. It's like really labor intensive. It's even like you have to have a special computer and, you know, it has to go in Blender and there's all these different things. It's like, you can't just like whip up a 3D asset. Like you have like modelers and like, it's a whole thing, lighting. I think that is a use case. I'm really excited for AI. You were just talking, Rachel, about AI to make like your life easier in certain ways. I am super excited for AI to help us with 3D product designs, 3D, like bringing it to life because that, you know, normal consumers don't know this, but if you've been on the brand side or you've been on the agency side, you understand how much work goes into creating assets for 3D and making those rigged and usable across different platforms. So that is one I'm really excited about. There is a technology that we've been playing around with that actually turns live action into 3D. And it's pretty amazing if you have your characters rigged. And I'm excited to see where that goes because I feel like that's my first, like, you see it and you're like, wow, this could really scale and can really help solve a real business challenge and like a real business opportunity for brands who have products which need to be in 3D and need to be brought across the internet. Yeah. And even the writing piece. I mean, I don't think anyone should be using AI to write their threads posts, but You know, we have used cases where we're using artificial intelligence to, you know, augment some of our content editorial sites or, you know, we're starting to play around with like search copy. Like it can take some tasks off of um, employees that they just hate doing that doesn't need to spend hours on. So those are use cases that I'm starting to see that are very low hanging fruit. Do I think they'll be integrated and or they'll be separate companies? I can't comment on that, but it's where I'm seeing the fastest adoption right now of AI in a big corporation. Yeah, there's a lot of no-brainer ways to do it. It's like a risk scale, right? And I'd love to hear your perspective on this, being at one of these big companies. But there's a risk appetite scale. And something like search copy is like typically written by a search agency anyway. Of course, it has to get approved. Uh, That's probably in the SEO is another one where it's in the a little bit more flexible camp. Something that stars talent that, you know, has anything relating to with intellectual property Anything to do with something that might be owned or IP protected, I think, is in the human-based as well. I think we're in the space where that's really touchy. But there's a spectrum. And what I'm seeing is brands kind of find the place where they're comfortable, identify a few pilot use cases, and you know start building their own proofs of concept. But just like anything, and Rachel, you're such an advocate for this, it all starts with education and understanding how generative AI works and what to look for. We all know those threads that are clearly written by AI that people are just like posting and copy pasting and they have no idea. It's like exactly the same as what 900 other people are saying. How do you think about educating your organization and helping a big organization like yours understand this emerging technology and design the right ways to start including it in your business? I think AI is a big conversation right now. We started with Metaverse a couple of years ago. I think AI is a good example because, you know, people get in the hype cycle, they read articles, everyone wants to talk about it and be the first in their brand or their company to be like, I did AI. But, you know, you have to educate people, one, on like what the downsides could be. We had an event a couple of weeks ago at L'Oreal and I asked the speaker come to speak about ethical AI because, you know, as an investor, one thing I really want to know is where's your data coming from? Where is this coming from? And it's a tough question and a lot of entrepreneurs don't always want to answer it, but 
we have to think about being, you know, inclusive and not, to your point, intellectual property, but also making sure that if we're a beauty company, that the AI tools that we build are not hallucinating and not being built from some, you know, a white man in an ivory tower. Like, you know, we have to be inclusive. I think companies really need to think about ethical AI and talking to the people who are experts on that and just learning what questions to ask. I always find the first step into any new technology. It's like, you've got to understand it. And you don't have to have the answers, but you have to know what questions. And we're all on an even playing field on AI. So getting those questions in order, I think, is step one. And putting provocative people who have been asking, there's always people out there who's been asking the questions a little bit longer than we have, and getting them to ask those questions with an audience and is always a fair way to start. I think the ethical side of AI goes both ways. On the one hand, we saw the Sarah Silverman lawsuit against ChatGPT this past week. And I think we're going to see just tons more of those because sourcing of the information within LLMs has not really been a transparent service, right? So we have a big challenge, which I know probably Avery deals with every day, of making sure that you're not putting something into the world that someone else can come and say that's mine, right? It's just brands are too big targets for that. But I also think, like, I remember being back in the, I used to own an innovation agency, and we were training a lot of systems on facial recognition. And facial recognition is great on white faces. It was terrible on dark skinned faces. And the amount of effort that we had to put in to make sure that it was an equal experience for all was a tremendous amount of work. And I also wonder about the biases that's going into what's being ingested by AI and the outputs. And then this, the other side of it is you're a brand that has a history, a catalog, you have thousands of products, both current and past, that someone else can just say, oh, let me ingest the entire L'Oreal line. So for my product design AI in the future, I now have a great learning set. But what does that mean for you as a brand to say, hey, those are all ours. Those are trademarked. And I think there's something interesting about understanding how you feed in and how you generate out. Yeah. And you have to be able to monitor that. And you have to be look at those insights. You have to have like a concept of like, you know, Q&A and risk analysis. It's very different, right? Like if you think about how exciting augmented reality was for Beauty Tryon, there was a period where it did not work on dark skins. It was a big conversation that we had in really early days. And everything was pretty manual then on how we did lighting and different phones and different cameras and Android, you know, it was a lot. You know, with the AI piece, like I give the example, like remember we all went crazy and we were all making our like avatars in like December, was that when that was? And, you know, guys how were superheroes and space explorers and women were like all like, you know, sexy and like in bikinis. And, you know, if you look at the three of me now, like that's not how I present myself to the world, but that's how, you know, generative AI presented me. So if you think about how those models are created, it's always a very clear example, at least in the beauty world of what representation and how the models are created can be problematic. Wasn't that also like a shady Russian, like hacker app that in the end was just sucking up all of our data? Maybe. <laughs> that was the app that was also aging people, right? Where you would like upload your face and then that was the whole thing. We need to look up what that app was called. But I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> the thing is, I think it's freaked us out so much. We don't even remember the name of it. We blacked it out. We were like, oh, <laughs> yeah, but I think that's good for entrepreneurs to think about because like, well, here's three people. We know every app. We talk about it all the time. And we had a situation where we felt a little bit dodgy and we don't remember the name of it. And you had to pay eight bucks. And you had to pay eight bucks. Think about that. Think about that if you're building a company right now. And answer your other question too. Like, you know, you'll see opportunities where we can maybe write content or for one of our sites and they're pulling data models and they might be putting products out. Forget the competitors that have been out discontinued. 10 years ago, you know what I mean? Like there's so much internet on the web. So that's why it's like, where, how are you building your models? Where, is your, where are your sources coming from? Is a really good question to ask, depending on what your use case is. 
where are you getting your data? How often is it refreshed? Like these are very real questions. And I think right now it still requires very heavy, like human degree of verification and validation. Like we're just at that stage where you cannot just copy pasta this stuff. You need to also be a subject matter expert to know which product was discontinued and which is the new one. And, you know, that's not the language we use anymore is an important sort of role of the brand guardians. Oh, I was going to say, I just always dreamed of like being in the outfit, right? I'm going to like a new dress or I'm going to a wedding or I don't know, I'm just an event, right? I take a picture of myself. I'm like, please design my makeup look, right? And then someone comes over, maybe it's like, I want certain levels of service. I want a professional. I want whatever my level of the services that I want delivered. It just comes and it looks great. And I have a tutorial, like everything becomes so seamless. That's the dream I have around beauty and AI today. I've always had it. Like, how do you just simplify it and how do you just tie it all together? I mean, I think that would be very exciting. And I thought we'd be there by now, but we're not. <laughs> but that's a good opportunity for someone. And it's an opportunity for a company because I agree. Like people want a new makeup look. You want to match my outfit. I'm wearing my Peter Pan collar today. I want something a little retro. Maybe we're going a cat eye. Who knows? But I would love AI to tell me that and design a look. You already know what my look is. You know what my brands I like. You know what my budget is. Like, you know everything. And like, how can you simplify? And that's where I think... They're low-hanging fruit. So we might not have AI makeup looks, but we have threads. Rachel, we are just a few days after the launch of Meta's Thread app. What are your thoughts? I've never seen a new social app grow so fast. So, you know, it indicates to me that consumers want something new, that they are maybe tired of what the existing opportunities could be. Time will tell. Time will tell. But the adoption of it has been very quick and very interesting to watch. And it indicates that people want something different. It was the quickest app to 100 million users, like five days. The thing that I thought a lot about this past weekend was, you know, the positioning that Adam Mercieri and Zuck are taking, which is this is your friendly place. Like news can be on Facebook or Twitter, but here is like conversation and fun. And I actually thought, even though they've said that they want to keep monetization away for a while, I was wondering how much this was also a response to them thinking, Brands are not having as much fun on Twitter anymore. This is another place that we can monetize brands because it, I mean, again, going back to what we were saying before, brands want to be on a place that's fun, right? Like that's the emotion you want. I mean, I can't comment on brands and, and the platforms we use because some brands have done very well on Twitter. Some brands, it's never been the audience. It's never been the expression, you know, the product of video and the, historically in some beauty brands, it's just never been a, a fit. But if they people bit audiences, like, yeah, so... As I always say, time will tell. And I think a brand should experiment on every platform, right? And be nimble and move. And, you know, being someone who's like, well, we're moving here or this, you know, having these thoughts. I said day one. I said, if anyone's trying to sell you thread strategy today, they're BS. Because it's day one. It is day one. And time tells. You got to watch. I always find you had to watch for a year or so, see how things go. Experiment organically. Experiment with different content. Be safe. Be rated G and see how things go. So that's my comment on threads and any other social app that comes up. I do think writing is hard. I think brands, you know, we saw this when I worked in early days, we had Betty Crocker as a brand. They're like, we're going to start a Betty Crocker blog. I'm like, who, Betty Crocker, who's going to write it? What voice is it? So I don't care what the app is. Text is hard. And building a community on text is hard. And humans having restraint to comment on a thread will be hard. Everyone's a little bit like, you know, I feel like threads has become like your corporate, you know, calling card a little bit and people feel like they're being watched and they're used to that Instagram perfection. So time will tell. We'll see how the community, it's all about the community and how they evolve. Avery, I'll be interested to see how many RFPs you've responded to already about a thread strategy. 
actually within the first 24 hours, 40 Vayner brands were on threads. And that's just would not have been possible if it wasn't part of Meta. And that's the reason that you can move so quickly. And that's the reason users could move quickly and brands could move quickly is because, okay, great. Like they already held your handle. Everything was like right there, super easy to onboard. Trust me when I say it probably took us years to get 40 Vayner brands on TikTok. So I echo the fact that the numbers are overwhelming and staggering of just easy adoption. But we're on day five or six and let's see what happens. Um, We are not pitching thread strategies right now, except as part of your holistic social strategy, which of course we do a ton of at Vayner. And who knows, like, you know, a few months ago it was B-Rail and everyone was getting on B-Rail and then it was Blue Sky and now it's Threads, which seems like a real player, but we always try to not put the cart before the horse. I mean, I have been on every social platform since they were invented and I can name them. I still miss Friendster. You know, I miss Path. What I'm finding now is like, there's just a nuance in the code. If you're a brand of how you talk on that platform that you got to get or you will fail, but you got to play. You got to put a lot of content on and experiment. But I think writing, I think we've been in such a world of the camera and photo and video writing is a skill and um, being interesting in a community as a writer is a skill. And I'm not sure brands are always the best community members. And I think all brands, we saw brands trying to struggle on Reddit, but writing is hard. And I think if threads is to be something that scales and has longevity, brands are going to have to learn to communicate and write and be interesting in a very quick, fast way that their talent might not be ready for today. And the fact is AI is not a very good writer. AI can do great sourcing of information and inspiration, but a good copywriter will beat it every day. Well, I don't know. When I first got ChatGPT, I had it write a poem about my friend's cat who had died. And it was like a sonnet about a cat who came. I mean, it was like very specific in my prompt. And I read it to him and he cried. And I said, he said, Rachel, that is so beautiful. I cannot believe you wrote this sonnet about the dude. And I was like, I didn't write it. ChatGPT did. (laughs) So... You know, it was a great moment. So, you know, sometimes ChatGPT can fool you. It was in the prompt. This is the thing I always tell people. ChatGPT is a great writer if you give it a great prompt. It's like a brief, garbage in, garbage out. Rachel probably gave it a great brief. She's done a gazillion briefs in her life and she got a great output. I'm very good at a brief. It's very specific. I had a vision. I had a vision what I wanted this poem to be. Yeah, but still like as an artist and as an augmented tool, it it was fantastic. Well... We always wrap the show on poems about dead cats. So thank you for hitting (laughs) the beat. That's not how I like to wrap a show. That's not how I like to wrap the show. But Rachel, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It was great to have you. We wanted you on for a while and you delivered and brought so much energy and life and insights for us to take away and for our audience. So I just wanted to say thank you so much and it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for having me. We could probably talk for hours. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your insights. 16 years at L'Oreal. And the one thing I'm never going to forget is Weiss World needs to be on the next channel that starts to pop off. We need to bring back Weiss World. I would tune in for sure. I think there's a you know, second career coming with you um, for innovation and comedy together. That should be your vibe with AI. It kind of is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's my dream of my retirement is a combination of comedy, AI, and live theater. And trolling millionaires on threads. Yeah, millionaires and other podcast hosts. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Rachel. (laughs) Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Avery, you did not lie. Rachel Weiss is a dynamo and just brought it for like 40 minutes straight. What were your takeaways? She always brings it. Rachel is a person who's so 
in it. I think a lot of times with brain leaders, especially really senior people, they're not, you know, they understand at a high level, but there's a million and one things going on. So they might not be like practitioners themselves. And one massive props I have to Rachel, she's in it. She's, you know, experimenting, she's writing, she's posting, she's owning a crypto punk, whatever it is. She actually takes the time to like really understand it as a consumer. And it's one of the reasons I like super admire, you know, her and her work over the past like decades of just being like on every social platform, on every emergency channel, testing everything, seeing what works and leaning in and scaling that at a huge company where, you know, their modus operandi is not always like move fast and break things. What did you think, Sam? Is your first time meeting Rachel? I mean, I didn't know what to expect, but I'm not only impressed. I feel like I also met someone I went to high school with, (laughs) you know, like that sort of New York upbringing of similarity was there. I think the thing that also was the most prescient thing that she said was that we should not focus on strategy or innovation or emerging tech, but really focus on growth. And how could you not focus on growth if you're not playing on these new emerging platforms? And that I think is a different mindset than a lot of people have. I think people look at like, oh no, we need to like, our strategy people think strategy and our innovation people think innovation, but everyone has to be in the business of growing the brand and taking advantage of these things when they come. I think that was really a a beautiful takeaway. Absolutely. She knows what she's talking about. Um, I wish we could have gotten even more into the world of Web3 and sort of what they've done there because L'Oreal has actually done quite a bit in the space. So I'm glad we were able to have a broader conversation just about emerging channels and how they've evolved at a Fortune 500 company over the last 16 years and how, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a big thread that we sort of talked about through this episode. No pun intended. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, thank you guys so much for listening. Ever you want to wrap us up? Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Gen C community for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed today's episode with the one and only Rachel Weiss. Weiss World needs to come back. Give Rachel a follow. And if you are not already staying tuned with all the awesome things that L'Oreal is doing, keep your eyes on some of their brands. Shout out to Nix in particular, who's really been paving the way and a lot of things emerging channels over the past couple of years. But really, across their portfolio, they're doing really interesting stuff. And as always, let Sam and I know what you loved, what you didn't love, what you want to hear more of as we're on this journey together for Gen C. Hope you all have a good one. Bye.